How would you define glory? That's my question. How would you define glory? Uh, I, I was an athlete, and um, I, I would say in athleticism, there are these like potential glorious moments that you experience. And uh, there's actually one that I want to show you. Uh, last year, uh, Illinois and Indiana were playing basketball, and Indiana was ranked number one in the nation of America, America. And, um, and uh, the, the score was tied 72 to 72 at the uh, Illini Dome Assembly Hall, and uh, there were 0.9 seconds left. And uh, this is what happened. Check this out. <clears throat> Yep, shirtless men. There they are. Who doesn't want to be a part of that? You know what I'm saying? It's amazing. How many of you have got to experience like a crowd mosh pit? Okay. Not nice. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Coolest thing ever. So check this out. Uh, that's all fun and stuff, but uh, it's way cooler when on YouTube you can find someone who took that same moment with their iPhone uh, from the crowd's perspective. Fire the laser. Check this out. So cool. Quality a little diminished. All right, all right, that's good. In this moment, in this moment, you, you, ha- you can do whatever you want. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they're like small children getting trampled. I mean, they're, they're, there are no rules in that moment, right? Um, unbelievable. We'd all want to experience that in some regard. I had the privilege of being a part of a couple last-second wins. And, man, it just, it's a glorious moment. Now, in the Bible, if there's a list of glorious moments, um, and on that same list being maybe best stories ever, Uh, Our story tonight probably takes uh, top five. Um, Here we are, the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, If you grew up like me in Sunday school, this was like the go-to every three months, you know? Um, When the Sunday school teacher was having a a bad prep week, you know, they would show up, pull out the felt board, and uh, hop to the parting of the sea. Um, What I realized, though, as is typical with studying the Bible is when you actually stop to really study it, you realize, you realize you had no idea, or at least me in this case, had no idea what the parting of the Red Sea was all about, what it really was, what the depths of it are. Um, this whole thing is about God's glory. And you're like, well, that's nice. Um, what I think we're all going to learn tonight is if I were to like go around and pass the mic and ask you all to define glory in terms of God, what I think we'd all realize tonight is I don't think we have a good clue at all. Um, So we're going to take this massive adventure with these Israelites, an entire chapter in Exodus 14. Uh, We will not have the scripture on the screen tonight, so there's Bibles underneath your seats. You can get out your LED screen. Uh, Let's turn or flip or dial in to Exodus 14. I'm going to pray for us, and um, then we're going to flood the room with water and see what happens, all right? We thought about it, seriously. I was like, do you think we could? And everyone was like, no, no. But no, what if it, no, we still, okay. Let me pray. Uh, Father, I thank you that, um, 
that stories that are in the Bible that feel so distant can, can all of a sudden become so real. Um, I know, God, tonight you have a very specific thing to say to us. And I'm just asking that they wouldn't be my words at all that are said or communicated, but that they would be straight from you. So as we watch this epic event unfold, I pray you'll all help us really understand what's going on in these beautiful words. In your great and holy name, amen. Exodus chapter 14, the Israelites have been released from slavery. They have been journeying with the direction of a pillar of fire and the cloud. The implication has been they haven't stopped for several days, uh, three was our journey last week. And so now all of a sudden they find themselves uh, in a bit of a predicament, okay? God has sent them by way of the wilderness, the long way around as we saw last week, and now they got a sea on one side and Egypt on the other. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back. Not a good start, right? Turn back. Turn, like back is where we, we just came from. Back is slavery. Back is Egypt. Tell the people to turn back and encamp. Some of you guys who enjoy camping know what the word encamp mean. I actually don't. Um, I think it means setting up camp, which I don't like or have never done. Anyway, turn back and encamp in front of Pi Hatharah between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal Zephon. Say that a few times. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. Well, well, this is a very odd instruction. If you're an Israelite and you've just been on this long journey with 1.5 or so million people and folks are starting to smell, you're not taking great or long breaks and you come to the sea and then the the command comes down, all right, we're just going to set up camp here and hope for the best. My guess is there begins to get this this sense of claustrophobia happening. Okay, it's like we got Egypt on one side, sea on the other. God, what, what are you doing here? Well, check this out. For Pharaoh, verse 3, will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land and the wilderness has shut them in. And I will, God says, harden Pharaoh's heart, verse 4, and he will pursue them and I will get, what's the word? I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. Now, there are many things that this story could presumably be about, but I'm going to make one contention to you tonight. There is only one thing that this entire story is about. Uh, To help us get an image of this, back to the 1950s, fire the Ten Commandments. Here we go. Accurate portrayal of the biblical account. There he is. A little more audio. Come on, let's hear this. Nice pose. Nice pose. Good graphics for the 50s. It's not bad. Listen to this guy. 
God has opened the sea with the blast of his nostrils. Because that's in the Bible. Oh no. All right, that's good. That's good. That's good. How many of you guys have actually seen this movie? Okay, just, all right. Good, about 13 of us. Um, there's a lot of possibilities. Really miraculous thing. A lot of moving parts here. Uh, but there is one thing that the story is about, and that's God's glory. The problem is, as we begin to unpack this, there are implications that go alongside of that. And that's why I'm saying you guys entered here maybe wanting or desiring to hear um, a version of the, the parting of the sea that makes you feel good. But I think tonight we're going to have a little bit different perspective of what really God's glory is. Okay? When the king of Egypt, verse 5, was told that the people had fled, that they weren't coming back. You remember a, a big point of contention in the battle of the plagues was, you guys go out for three days, make sacrifice, and come back. Well, it's been three days. Pharaoh realizes they're not coming back. The mind of Pharaoh, verse 5, and his servants was changed toward the people. Uh, remember, there was not one house in all of Egypt that didn't have someone dead in it. So they've been reeling. They've been mourning. They've been going through some hardship. Now, all of a sudden, they wake up and realize the slaves that they had weren't coming back. So they say, in the middle of verse 5, what is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? Okay, you guys know Egyptian architecture. They had some pretty grandiose plans. And so they realized that our greatest workforce were now gone. And so their heart begins to shift from their own mourning, and now it begins to go back on getting the Israelites. So verse 6, he made ready his chariot. And took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them, which is a bit confusing. Here's why. Took 600 and then took all of them. Why doesn't the Bible just say all of them, you know? Like, they took 600 and then they took the rest of them, which is all of them. And we could have said that the first time. Well, the reason the Bible records this is because 600 is a common denomination of militant warfare. Interestingly enough. So Moses, the writer, recognizes this and says he, he, Pharaoh, goes out and chooses 600 chariots. And all of a sudden, these chariots start aiming way at the Israelites. Now, I'm guessing some of you guys feel claustrophobic at times. Maybe some of you guys really struggle with that. How many would just be willing to admit, I get claustrophobic, okay? In fact, right now, these people are sitting so close to me, claustrophobic in and of itself. Listen to this. The first night, I was a, uh, my second job as a youth pastor, 22 years old, we just opened this brand new $3 million youth facility that I had nothing to do with. I just showed up, and it was like brand new. It was awesome. And uh, brand new elevator, which in youth ministry, it's like elevator is, you know, it's like a carnival ride, okay? And um, so about 20 minutes into our very first youth group meeting ever, you know, man, we're really excited. I'm like, where's my wife? Like, I, like, I'm looking, looking around for Heidi, you know, I was excited to kind of, like, show her off. You know, she's super hot. So I was like, look, this is my wife, you know. <laughs> we just got married, you know, I was really excited about it all. And uh, listen, come to find out, come to find out, my wife uh, thought it appropriate uh, that because 25 students literally were getting on the elevator, that she would join them, okay. 
So 25 students and my wife are, are on the elevator stuck in between the floors because the elevator was like, I wasn't made to do this. You know what I mean? Like, you, there's a weight capacity on. So literally for 20 minutes, it, it was 100 degrees out that day, okay? So until the fire department came, all 26 of them were stuck in the elevator. And here's the way my wife describes it. Uh, I remember later that night, she's like, Mark, have you ever smelled a junior hire? And um, <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, imagine like 25 of them you know, in 100 degree heat. She's like, I was literally so claustrophobic. I was you know, ready to scream crazy, right, the first night. Uh, so that was my entrance into youth ministry at that church. It was a great start. Got chewed out by the elders the next day. Anyway, um, that feeling of not being able to go anywhere. Listen, imagine you're an Israelite, right? And you're beginning to hear the chariots come over the, the crest of the hills. And again, I'm guessing, I'm not a proficient in my chariot knowledge, but I'm guessing you get a lot of them, you know, probably, probably similar to a train coming. So you start hearing these chariots come over the hill, and then you, you look to your right, and there's sea. It's like, I, I got nowhere to go. To your left is the oncoming onslaught, and to your right is a dead end. So, um, my guess is, is that all of you guys, and maybe some of you now, feel extremely claustrophobic in your life. You look on one side, chaos. You look on the other side, nowhere to go. You feel trapped. Um, for those that feel trapped tonight, or those that have, bless you, ever felt trapped, um, these next moments, I really believe, are for you. The Israelites are surrounded. Look at this. And the Lord, verse 8, hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel when the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians, verse 9, pursued them. All Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and encamped, uh, overtook them and camped at the sea by Baha'arath in front of Baal Zephron. So they... They all of a sudden come in proximity to the Israelites. And so their worst fears are potentially now being realized. And so they respond. Look at this in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near the people, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. So you can picture this, 1.5 or so million people. They look up, here come the Egyptians, and they, Scripture said, feared greatly. And look at this, and the people of Israel... What? Cried out to who? Cried out to the Lord. And so all of us were like, yes. Like finally they're showing their faith. Right? All of us, they're, they're claustrophobic. They're ready to die. They don't know what's going to happen. And where do they turn? Like Psalm 121 says, their help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. And that's where they turn. So the scripture says they cry out to the Lord, but not for long. Then they said to Moses <laughs> right away, it is because there are, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? So here's what happens, and I'm sure none of you ever in your life do this. Oh God, please help me, and then instantly look at all the peripheral, at all the circumstance, at all the situations, and you begin to justify, and you begin to talk through it, and you begin to work through it, and you let fear and worry completely 
surround you. That's these people. Oh, God, please help us. Moses, there weren't enough graves in Egypt. you got to bring us out here to die. Is that, is that the case? Which is actually tremendous irony. Maybe you're familiar with the uh, tombs in Egypt or mummies or dead Egyptian people. Um, basically, in Egypt, they were obsessed with the afterlife. Obsessed with it. And so because they were obsessed with it, they took great care of the dead. And so when the Israelites say, were there not enough graves in Egypt, it wasn't like a nice pun. They were, they were literally saying, there were plenty of tombs in Egypt. Like we were already ready to die there. So Moses, you just brought us out here to, to let us now die at the hand of who used to enslave us? Makes no sense. Uh, for me, what it does is it grabs every single one of us and looks us right in the eye and asks, are we using God when it's convenient for us? And then instantly beginning to justify and instantly beginning to talk through and instantly beginning to make us feel better by pointing fingers. It's like we use God as some semblance of hope to throw it in because when we do, God will somehow be gracious because we gave him our first fruits. God, I came to you first, but then I'm going to go to 15 people who haven't been in the word and I'm going to ask them for wisdom. And I'm going to wait to really listen to the one who gives me the answer that I want. And then I'm going to go to this book and this uh, relationship over here and this thing I'm going to find comfort from. Listen, being claustrophobic in our situations is one of the most beautiful places you can ever find yourself. You're like, Mark, that makes no sense. And I say, exactly. Nowhere to go. Nowhere to turn. Armies of death and treachery. See, I got nothing. I got nowhere. That is such a beautiful place to be because it's at that moment that you are again reminded, whether you receive it or not, that's the question, but you're again reminded that your life hangs in the hand of the Lord. That you're again reminded it doesn't matter how claustrophobic, how overwhelming, how desperate your situation feels or is. To God, what is an army and what is a sea? You guys understand what I'm saying? What is the death of a relative or, or a close friend? You're like, well, Mark, that sounds catty. No, what is it in the eyes of the Lord? What is all of the stress that you have right now about school because finals week is coming up? What is it to the Lord? You take your situation, you name it, and you put it in a list. What are those things to the Lord? Pharaoh's army, who cares? A sea, who cares? Your situation, who cares? In the eyes of God, it's just another thing to overcome. Do you guys see what I'm saying? So this point in life is such a beautiful place to be because you get to be reminded of that again, just like these Israelites are. And I'm telling you, we need that reminder daily. The thing is, we just don't want it. Because we're like, well, well, Mark, but then I'd have to be at that place in my, and I don't like that place, and that place is sweaty, and that place is claustrophobic, and that place, you know, caused me to think that life really isn't present right there. But I'm telling you, we need to be there every day. Every moment of every day. God, bring me again to the place where I'm reminded, though everything says it's done, you can make a way again, right? So here comes the army. The Israelites are getting snippy with Moses. What have you done at the end of verse 11 in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Remember that? Now they're bringing up the past. Moses, we told you, leave us there. 
And now you've brought us out here to die. For it would have been better, into verse 12, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, come on now. Fear not. Stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you. What does the word say? Today. Fear not and stand firm. The catalog in my mind reels uh, when I read the scripture. And when I read this passage, I think of a time when the disciples were on a boat and the storm started coming up and they thought they were going to die. And then Jesus said, it is I, do not be afraid. Um, With a big audience. Moses looks out and says, no, 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 you don't understand. Now is not the time for cowardice. Now is not the time to be gripped with fear of circumstantial pain. Now is the time for us to watch God work. And then he says one of the most beautiful verses in uh, chapter 14 and Exodus combined and often misunderstood. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. Moses saying, hey guys, it's not just that we're going to win. All these Egyptians are going to die. And then verse 14, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Come on. Now, this is a nice verse. I mean, this is a, gr- this is a great verse. Okay, some of you guys got some tattoo of this, right? The Lord will fight for you. I just need to be silent. And it sounds really soothing. And it sounds really comforting. It's like, you know, God's rubbing your back. Just, you know, sorry. Stand, just, it's okay. We're going to get through it together. I did as much research as I possibly could on the Hebrew word for quiet. There's a phrase that I tell my kids they cannot say. Because it sounds so harsh. Right? When was the last time someone told you to shut up? Right? Like it's, it's not a cuss word, but it kind of feels like it, doesn't it? It's like, shut up. Whoa, hey, come on, man. Take it easy. When was the last time someone told you that? Like, it, it carries with it a certain weight. I'm not saying that the exact Hebrew is shut up, but I'm saying it's a very emphatic, be quiet. It's Moses looking at the people and saying literally, stop talking. God will fight for you. Stop trying to justify. Stop trying to work your way out of it with your creative phrases and words. Be quiet and watch God work. I'm guessing that, that all angry, I picture him looking out and saying, everybody be quiet. God will fight for us today. And I don't know about you, but that is literally the mantra of my life. You're like, Mark, you should do a lot of talking, right? Like, how, how is that the mantra of your life? The mantra of my entire existence is God will fight for me. Uh, men, can I speak to you for a second? Is that cool? Thanks. Um, and have, it, if, have you guys seen Rocky IV? If you haven't, you're a communist. That was pretty good. Uh, <laughs> you got Ivan Drago, the Russian, okay? You got like Gorbachev up in, the, up in the rafters watching, and you got Rocky. And at the end, this thing is just a fight, man. I mean, these guys are just slugging, not realistic at all. Um, but there's something in the guy part of me that's just watching these two dudes go at it. 
that I just, I really start to, like my heart starts pumping. I don't want to box, but I'm just like, you know, this, this, this is exciting. This is fun. This is, this is a fight, you know. I, I long for, and I, I started sharing a little bit on this front last week. I long for men to be men who believe more than anything that God is the one who fights for them. Versus men that still believe they have a fight to fight at all. And you're like, but, but Mark, Paul tells Timothy um, to fight the good fight. Yeah, fighting the good fight is releasing the fight to the, the fight that the Lord's already fought. Say that four times, right? Um, so I look at all of you dudes especially who are trying to like earn your male medals. You know, that you're kind of trying to become this man that you feel like you're supposed to be that maybe your father portrayed to or grandparent. Listen, one of the greatest things men in general, and, and I desire men in this church to be, are men that say, God has fought. I don't have to earn my masculinity with a low voice or medals on a wall. I have the opportunity to follow this God who has fought the fight for me. And so my life then is a response to him. I've said this a lot recently, but especially to you girls here who are looking for a man to date or pursue or, or uh, rather be pursued by, um, let me encourage you with this. Uh, any man, any man who still is like fighting like some weird fight for, you know, kind of his deal and, and you don't see a surrendering to the, the fight that's already been won in Christ, listen, he's going to take you on a fight for like his honor more than the fame for Christ. You guys understand what I'm saying? He's going to like, he's going to pull you along through his insecurities, trying to like figure out his masculinity. So you wait on a dude who fully recognizes and realizes, despite his insecurities, that God has won and that now the rest of his life is in response to that, okay? This is that moment for the Israelites. Be quiet. Shut up. God will fight for us. Stop talking. Just watch and listen. So now let's see the fight ensue. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry, verse 15, to me? Which is funny. Moses is just like, he's just, he's just like defended the cause of God. Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to what? To go forward. I problema for the bilingual. Like they see the chariots and now they're hearing go forward. Into what? You know, we're, we're, not, we're not great swimmers. Right. There, there's nowhere to go forward to. And I'm telling you guys, listen. For those of you that have experienced this exact word from God, what a beautiful place. He says go forward. You're like, to what? Off a cliff? Into missions over here? With this relationship over there? Into this house in St. Charles that I have no idea what's going on? Like, Go forward into what? And God's like, exactly. Like, I'm taking you there. I'm fighting for you. Watch this. Trust me. Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff. And this will be the last time that we see the staff do something rowdy. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. That the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they shall go in after them. And I will get what? 
glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten what? That's right, glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, verse 19, who was going before the host of Israel, listen, this is so beautiful, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. These things that were guiding and directing now are protecting. Um, This has got me thinking a little bit. I did this study on demonology like three or four years ago. Like, Mark, this has nothing to do with nothing. Hang on, okay? There's nine mentions of Hasatan in the Old Testament of Satan. Nine, okay? Nine. Jesus comes on the scene. Bless you again. Jesus comes on the scene. And listen, all of a sudden demons come out of the woodwork. Satan comes out of the woodwork. Mention after mention after mention. It's as if Satan knows full well that his adversary is now here in the flesh. One of the most powerful images I've seen in the Gospels is when Satan comes to Jesus and tempts him three times. Jesus uses God's word in his defense. And at the end, Satan, as it were, walks away with his tail between his legs defeated again. And you're like, Mark, why are you saying this? Here, here's the point. God not just directs his people, but he protects his people. I was sitting in a room with someone who was telling me that they had just started dabbling in meditation. And at the moment that I heard that, I already started to get like weighty. And then he's like, yeah, um, so I started dabbling in meditation And now every night that I go to bed, I see a black image over my body. And he's like, Mark, what do you think that is? Non-believer. I'm like, look, I'm I'm not there, thankfully. um, So I can't say. But here's what I do know. I do know that Satan and the enemy and evil are very real. And I've seen instance after instance of his reality. And dude, all I got for you is there's only one protection, and that's in Christ. If you are not protected by Christ, if you're not in relationship with God by Christ, let me tell you this, there is a very real and present danger in Satan himself. For those of you guys that diminish that, come on now. For those of you not in Christ, you remember seasons when you watch some demon-possessed movies? Right? The exorcism of Emily Rose or something, whatever it was. And all of a sudden you found yourself going to bed that night and like looking around at 2 10, whatever a.m., right? <laughs> right? And you like, you wake up and you look at the clock, you're like, whoa, dude, it's like 2 3. And like, no, right? <laughs> Listen, let me tell you something. When I watched those movies or when I had watched those movies, here's the amazing thing Satan can attempt in my life. But I am protected. And that, this may seem catty. You may be like, well, Mark, this is a strange thing to talk about. No, no, no. In this case, God no, doesn't just guide his people. He protects them. And I'm so thankful with a very real enemy around, prowling around, looking for someone to devour. That's what scripture says. I'm thankful that in Christ I'm protected. And I'm just saying, if you're not in Christ, you are not protected. Can you be demon-possessed and in Christ? No. In Christ, protected. Are we together? So this pillar moves from directing them, and all of a sudden, by night, is guarding them from the pursuits of the Egyptians. 
coming between, verse 20 says, the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Verse 21, come on. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. Just so happens we have a Google image of this exact moment in Scripture. Check this out. Google Earth. There it is. Right there. Um, Google is so unbelievably amazing. They can actually take pictures from back in time. You know, this is crazy. Okay, take that down. All right. Uh, I just made that on my computer earlier today. Now, um, what kind of wind does the Scripture say it was? East. Okay, for the directionally challenged, where we've seen this map take place is the Israelites are coming from Egypt, and they find themselves right up against the sea. Well, if there's an east wind, that means the way the Ten Commandments movie portrays the wind, it would actually be the opposite. Again, I don't know my winds and water partings, okay? But if it's it's an east wind, that means the, the wind would be blowing down on the water from the east, and that all the Israelites would be sitting on the beach, watching it come at them instead of going away from them. Are we together? Because as the movie portrays, it's a westerly wind that's like pushing the water down and then out. But in this case, it says it was an easter wind. So just imagine, please, I know it's going to be tough. If you're an Israelite, and you look back and you see the army, and then all of a sudden Moses, and you're watching the waters begin to sift. And you're feeling the massive wind against your face. Like what would be going on in your heart and in your mind? What kind of hope would all of a sudden you be experiencing? I mean, you thought just moments ago you were as good as dead. We're either going back to Egypt or all these Egyptians are going to kill us now. And then just at the brink of hopelessness, God says... Yeah, I'm just, I'm going to go ahead and part this entire sea. Um, There's many theories out there. If you spend any time studying the story, there's many people who think that the parting of the sea was actually the Israelites walking across six inches of water. If that's the case, then the greater miracle is that an entire army of Egyptians were killed in six inches of water. See what I'm saying? Like, what's the greater miracle? The fact that they walked across this, uh, you know, walked across six inches of water on rock, or that God somehow miraculously killed an entire army in six inches of water. You guys see what I'm saying? So people can have all kinds of theories. There's all kinds of historical this and historical that. Okay, just so you know, for us at Matthias, we believe in the Bible. Okay? Maybe like, well, Mark, that's naive. If that's naive, then so is the resurrection. You're like, Mark, well, that's not fair. For me, it's for me, it's all or nothing. You don't get to pick and choose. And if you do, that's fine. Then this is just a nice book and not truth. So all of a sudden, these waters start to part. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. And waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. I remember being a kid trying to picture this story. And like... You know, so many childish things you can think, but I always like pictured like fish, you know, like the kids are walking by like, dad, you know, and dad's trying to act cool like he's seen it before. Come on, that's, you know, this happened back when I was a kid, you know, let's just, just keep going, right? Like, 
seriously, like picture a six, seven-year-old. I mean, this all of a sudden is, you know, the craziest circus you've ever been to, right? I just, I picture them walking by and seeing all the animals and, you know, like, there's like sea dolphins smiling at them. You know, you got like mermans in the water, you know, just this really crazy scene. Did I just say mermans? Did that happen? I'm really sorry. Really sorry, little mermaid. Um, All right, here we go. (laughs) And the people of Israel went out in their midst. Look at this, verse 23. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, huge point. And in the morning watch, this is from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. The Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw, God did, the Egyptian forces into panic. Verse 25, clogging their chariot wheels, stopping them up so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. All of a sudden, the the forces from Egypt are thrown into chaos and now they're realizing what's going to happen. They're like we saw in the movie, like they're going to Pharaoh, like, dude, we got to get out of here. This is not good. Remember, all our firstborn were just killed. They recognize that God fights for them. And I'm just telling every single one of you, and especially dudes again here, if the world doesn't believe that God is fighting for you, then my friends, they will not see God in your life at all. They will see a man and a woman who is pursuing things in their life, and when they accomplish them, desiring the glory for themselves. What the world needs to see, my friends, is a whole bunch of people who really believe that God fights for them. So that the world then says, man, like those people, it's clear that they know their strengths and their weaknesses and that they're, they're resting on something. In duress, they rest in him. In their joy, they give him the glory. And Like, it doesn't matter. Those people, it's clear, like, something else is fighting for them. And then I had the opportunity to tell a dude who came up after the first service. He's like, Mark, second time here, tell me again, because I do not feel like I can forgive myself. And I was like, brother, that's exactly the point. You cannot. You cannot forgive yourself. He has, he does, in Christ he will, he fights for you. The world needs to see people who really believe in the all-sufficient grace and power of God, not the all-sufficient power of you. And look at the shows you watch, look at the culture you live in. Everyone's trying to boost your self-esteem and boost how you encourage each other and boost how you feel about yourself and boost all the images that we have. What we need to do is diminish our view of who we are apart from Christ, exalt Christ, and then exalt the fact that we're sons and daughters in him. You guys see what I'm saying? There's a difference. We can spend our life trying to make ourselves feel better or we can spend our life in joy that Christ has made us anything at all. Like, we got to take our pick. Don't you love here? The Egyptians are like, we got to get out of here. Their God fights for them. Because clearly they're not ready. They don't have any chariots. They're like fish out of water here, pun intended. Here we go. Now. No, no, no. And in the morning watch, verse 24, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down out of the Egyptians, clogging their chariots. And verse 26, look at this. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, 
that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. And I'm wondering, why does God ask Moses to do this? Doesn't it seem like kind of a twisted joke? Like, Moses, you're going to be a part of judgment. So stretch out your staff, bring the waters down, and kill everybody. Um, By the way, while we're on the subject, this isn't the part that's talked about in Sunday school. You know, the Sunday school teacher wasn't like, okay, kids, and now Moses stood up and he killed everyone, you know? (laughs) Okay, anyone have any questions, you know? Because if so, I would have been the six and seven-year-old raising my hand saying, hold on, como se dice? Like, like, like the water, everyone died? Uh, yes, that's... So, if you've ever had to tell someone about hell, you know the feeling. <laughs> if you've never talked about hell with someone, then that's a pretty good indication It's a pretty good indication that you're too fearful to talk about truth. Uh, Some of you guys maybe grew up in situations that we would classify as hellfire and brimstone. Just so you know our stance, I wouldn't classify us as hellfire and brimstone. What I would say is I believe in hell. I believe that there is an eternal place for people who are not Connected to God through Christ. And I have to tell people about it. Not as a means of giving them a get out of hell free card in Christ. But I have to preach and share and talk at times about the real pending judgment. It's real. And I I believe that God puts Moses in this position, obviously just participating. I mean, God's the one doing it. Because there is going to be time after time after time where Moses is going to be bringing down judgment specifically to the people, where he's going to have to communicate it, and eventually including himself. That if he doesn't get used to it now, it's going to be a long road. What I'm saying, my friends, is if you've been scared to tell people about hell in fear of being classified as hellfire and brimstone, then you need to read your Bible again. Because Jesus makes clear that this is a very real reality. I'm not saying we like start going around wearing t-shirts that say, you know, you want some hell or not, you know? (laughs) Not a bad slogan actually, right? Like, no, I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is at times we will have to share the hard truth with people. So Moses stretched out his hand, verse 27, over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course When the morning appeared, and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. What does the scripture say? Not one of them remained. When does this happen? When does this happen? And at when? At the morning, at the break of dawn. Uh, Do you guys remember who's the god of of light in Egypt? Anyone? Ra. Uh, Where's Ra at right now? 
Does anyone find it interesting that in God's defeating of the Egyptians, he does it at the break of dawn, when Ra is supposed to be protecting his people? Where's Ra at now? Ra, what do you got? Ra doesn't exist. That's God's point. Where's your God? He can't protect you from this judgment. Remember when you were trying to kill my firstborn, my people, back in the, when Moses was a baby? No, 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 no. At morning, the sea collapses on them. But verse 29, the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. Just imagine this massive, horrific, joy-giving joy scene all at once. And for me, the most beautiful verse of this entire thing. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. So they literally, they literally walk to the other side. And they look back just at the break of the sun coming over the crest of the sea. And what they see laid on the beach are dead Egyptian bodies. Now, if I'm an Israelite, and I don't understand this, I'm like chest bumping everybody. I'm high-fiving. I'm hugging. I'm like, guys, we, we just walked on dry land through the sea. But instead, we don't get a picture of an outbreak of celebration. Instead, we get this almost ominous picture of an entire nation that's been saved, and yet they turn around, and on the beach, carcass after carcass, which tells you what? God allowed the Egyptians to get close enough to the beach where they could taste victory, and at the moment that they thought they had it, he said, no. Satan gets Jesus all the way to the cross. And at the moment, he thinks he has him. God says three days later, no. Well, the question is, um, do we ever or have we ever made this walk? Verse 31 says this. Israel saw the great, look at this, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people, the Israelites, feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. They get to the other side, they see this scene, and the scripture says they feared God. Amidst death and pain and joy, all of a sudden these Israelites get a glimpse of what the glory of God is like. I feel like I've made this walk. And it's nothing short of miraculous. And I feel like for me, as I walk across the beach and I look back, what I see is I see the old man. I see the old self, the old piece of me lying dead on a beach. And now I have the sense as I turn back around that now life begins. Here's what Romans says. Check this out. 
Romans says of this exact experience, we know that our old self was crucified with him, with Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to what? What's the word? Come on. Might be brought to nothing. The walk has been made. Christ has paved the way. Christ has done the work. And then what do we get the, what do we get the picture and the image of? A whole bunch of old selves dead on the beach, crucified. No more. What an ominous, eerie, joyful experience that is too easily and too quickly forgotten. Romans 6 goes on. For one, for one who has died has been set free from sin. So now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, look at this, being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him and therefore has dominion over you. That dead man is dead on the beach in view of the power of God. You guys see what I'm saying? Like this is the glory of God seen in your life. You deserve to die in those waters too. There is no reason outside of God's mercy that any of those Israelites were saved. They should have drowned just like all the other Egyptians. But God, for his glory, said, nope, you're mine. So the question then is, how do we see God's glory in Exodus chapter 14? First is this, defeating the Egyptian gods. Where you at, Ra? I get glory because I show you're a lowercase God and you don't exist. Ra, you're like, where's your strength? Where's your sustenance how can you provide for these people oh you can't that's because you don't even you're not even real listen think about your idols my friends and how much credence you're giving them you set god next to your idols on your mantle and those idols aren't even real they provide you nothing and god on a daily basis is showing you how he defeats that idolatry the second way we see god's glory in exodus 14 is by defeating the egyptians this is a very harsh reality isn't it Did your Sunday school teacher say that God got glory by killing the Egyptians? Because that's what happened. You're like, Mark, man, this isn't the Bible that that I thought was. Like, Mark, what are you saying? are Are you saying that God gets glory in this story by killing an army? Can anyone see anything else in this passage to believe outside of that? Any ideas, any theories? I mean, is there any other way to interpret the text? God gets glory by making darn sure that every single Egyptian understands that they have no control at all. The third way God gets glory in Exodus 14 is by, come on, defending the helpless. Do you picture the Israelites as like some like massive, awesome warfare organization? Heck no. They got herds. They don't even know where they're going. They're lost. They can barely set up camp. They've been trained as slaves, and that's it. And what does God do? He steps in and says, no, no, no. You're like a sheep that's been led to a slaughter, and I'm going to protect you. You're helpless, but I'm going to guide you. You're hopeless, but I'm going to love you. That's what God does. You ever feel helpless? Then praise God, because that's an amazing place to be. Listen, we rest too much on the efforts and abilities that we try to muster up when God's like, I defend the helpless. That's what I do. So find yourself in a place of utter desperation, and then maybe there you'll understand how deep my grace and my love is for you. The fourth way we see uh, his glory is simply by saving his people. 
by loving them, by encouraging them. Listen, all throughout the plague journey, we said this statement. And my question is, do we even have any clue of what this means? God's will by God's power for God's glory. Do you guys have any idea what this means? What in the world do you and I take from walking across a dry land with a parted sea as a wall to the left and to the right? What are you and I to do? Well, I sit back and I say, God, do I want you to receive glory more than me? God, is the interest in my life to exalt you or exalt me? Because if I believe God's will by God's power for God's glory, then what I'm saying is, whatever it takes, give yourself glory. And by this story tonight, we saw what it takes in this situation, in this moment. So I just want to ask you guys, are you okay with that? Because some of you right now who are amidst the deepest pain you could ever experience, you just lost someone close, you're journeying through much difficulty, what if, what if the whole intention of this long way around for you was to bring himself glory? Are you okay with that? We've had this image of God's glory as being the words that we communicate with our life or the songs that we sing or the praises that we give. But what do we see in this, te in this text? God receives glory by his fight. And the people at the end, what do they do? They just believe it. I love Jesus in the triumphant entry. What does he say? When the Pharisees chastise his disciples for praising him, he says, if they don't, the rocks will cry out. What I'm saying is, whether you give him glory or not, he will get it. Come on. Whether you write in your journal or get a tattoo or think on it every single day, give him glory. It doesn't matter. In the end, he will get it. He's getting it now. He'll get it tomorrow. And he'll get it the next day. And in the end, when he conquers death and when he conquers Satan once and for all, he'll get it again and forevermore. The question for you and I is, will our lives be lived like 1 Timothy 1, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Is this your prayer? Be honor and glory forever and ever. Would you be willing to pray tonight, God, whatever it takes to give yourself glory, do it. It's a very scary prayer, but it's the prayer of surrender. And I feel like for us as a church, if we desire to see God continue to move in our body as he's already made accustomed to doing, we must continue to say, your will be done for your glories and your name's sake, God. Make yourself glorified. So I want to pray for us because I know so many of you guys 
in your heart, you're like, heck no. Let's pray for courage. Let's pray for a deepening faith. Come on. Father, please, for my friends, for my own heart, for our collective struggles, we have seen a very clear glimpse of your character tonight. We have seen that you will do anything to save your people. And we are grateful, God, that that anything included the sacrifice of your son. So God, in light of those things, will you give us courage and strength to submit and to bend our knee to your power and to your direction and to your sovereignty. God, for the ways that we are trying to earn fame or accolades for us, I pray that you will purge our life of those pursuits. God, hone our heart into fully submitting to you. So God, for the scared here, for the helpless, for the hopeless, for the unloved, I pray, God, that maybe for the first time they'll realize that it's not their fight to fight at all. So thank you for fighting for us.